Eventually, it'll be like kind of a John Stewart arrangement, where, uh, or maybe a Tucker Carlson update it a little bit. Why did Marx invent the symptom, and how did he do it? And we, and we, have appeared to have chosen quite a difficult subject for ourselves again, Michael. Yeah, who fucked that up? So fuck you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I apologize sincerely, but here we are. I felt confident the first five pages, and then yeah. when I ran in, especially the last three pages, I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, it gets way too hectic. Well, he's, like, it's hilarious because he's talking about, like, five or six things at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I thought it was going to be an, <laughs> an easy one. And I've read this, like, three times. In the last two years or whatever. Same. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. This is the probably the third or fourth time I read it. I mean, he comes right out of the gate, right? This is his first book. Yeah. <laughs> um, also so Michael though, uh tell me how was a how is it possible for Marx in his analysis of the world of commodities to produce a notion which applies also to the analysis of dreams, hysterical phenomena, and so on. Oh, oh sorry, May. Yeah. Well, Peter, you'll find that there's a, a, a formal homology between your <laughs> interpretive procedures. <laughs> I, I think you were saying that it was none other than Karl Marx who invented the notion of the symptom in his declining thesis, just the sally of wit, a vague analogy, or does it possess a pertinent theoretical formulation? You were saying before. I hate this. <laughs> yeah. Right after we'll be like, well, I think we wait, quoted I think, too much. Wait, I think it said, uh, uh, if Marx really articulated the notion of the symptom as it was also at work in the Freudian field, then we must ask ourselves the Kantian question concerning the epistemological notions, the conditions of possibility of such an encounter. I was saying, I was trying to emphasize the Kantian question of the epistemological uh, conditions of possibility. Yeah, you did that, say that. I, yeah. I was pointing that out. Well, what he's, what he's getting at with the, uh, the comparison between Freud and Marx is that each presents a, an interpretive mode of looking at um, manifest content as it, as it seems to relate to uh, the latent thought, which in the commodity is like, the commodity is like, the commodity is, yes, a uh, equivalency between values. Um, but there's a, there's a kind of third layer that he's trying to get, that, that Zizek is trying to point out that uh, is, is the kind of real secret of the form itself. That is, mm -hmm. the secret of the, of the third layer is, is the form itself and the way that the form falls into the content of the dream or of the, of the commodity form. Yeah, like what what in Marx he opens okay, we'll open the episode, Jack and so on. Um uh, I think it's patron, exclusive patron content. Um you got Michael, uh, Will and Peter. And we're yeah. talking about the the um the opening chapter, the sublime object of ideology, which we all know we all know about and we know what to really get into. Uh, uh Zizek's seminal nineteen eighty nine work. <laughs> Of course, uh, the the first and and groundbreaking uh, iteration of Zizek's uh, idiosyncratic, and, <laughs> uh, 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 peculiar method of 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 hybridizing Lacan, Marx, and Hegel. Um, uh, and I, I think Michael, you were saying the idea that Zizek is a thinker who regards nothing as outside its field. The result is deeply interesting and provocative. 
I think you said that the other day. That's true. <laughs> uh, and to which I said, he's truly the Elvis of cultural theory. <laughs> maybe, maybe he's like the Elvis of cultural theory because the thing that was so uh, perplexing to, to the parents of that era whose children were listening to Elvis was that Elvis shook his hips around. Elvis the pelvis, they called him. Mm-hmm. There was this very like sexual aspect to, to Elvis's performance. Uh, and of course, with Zizek, you know, the, <laughs> the truly disconcerting thing about, about, about Zizek's performance is his sniffles and his tugging mm-hmm. at his T-shirt. Uh, it's the thing that that stands in for the for the trauma of the thing. <laughs> yeah, right. We have in the opening chapter to Sublime Object the first use of Zizek's and so on. Oh, really? I didn't pick up on that. He, he says that. Yeah, no, that was well. No, that was what Michael said earlier. But I guess you might have been referencing Zizek at that point, Michael. When you said that to produce a notion which applies also to the analysis of dreams, hysterical phenomena, and so on. Well, you got to watch your mic because it's rubbing against your shirt. Yeah, just for everyone, uh, so everyone knows. Uh, I don't know what the quality of this is. It wasn't terrible last time. but um, No, it wasn't. My microphone is broken, so I'm using my, my headphone microphones. Uh, Jake's gone back to uh, whatever the fuck he's doing when he's not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so... Okay, so what Zizek is trying to set up at the beginning of this is that, is that like in interpreting the political economy, like in like interpreting dreams, there tends to be a fetishistic fascina- fascination of the content supposedly hidden behind the form. Mm-hmm. Right? And if he first, it's interesting, first he explains what's going on with Marx by way of exampling Freud and dreams, and then he, he explains Freud by going into the commodity form. Um, uh-huh, yeah. And they each kind of like, when I, when I read this, I'm like, as soon as I start to not really get what he's talking about with Freud, he very he clearly clarifies it with Marx. Uh-huh. But yeah, he's like, there's something at work in both Marx and Freud where we tend to look at, where in the kind of normal functioning of ideology or of uh, our you know, uh, ego, we or of our approach to, to understanding uh, dreams or commodities or whatever. Or, the, or a social reality. Yeah, we tend to look at like what's, what's, what's evident, what's, what the content of those things is. Like yeah. if you, if you, I was just talking about my dream earlier, which and your eyes glazed over, but because the content wasn't really that interesting. Really, <laughs> <Yeah>. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be fair. And, uh, but yeah, both what, Freud and earlier Marx was doing was that what appears first as the most evident thing about a commodity or a dream mm-hmm. is actually um, beside the point of, of how we can understand these phenomena. It's not, it's, it's not really what. Yeah. Like it, it, there's, there's a further element to it, which Zizek is trying to point to where it's, it's about the kind of like movement of the, of the form itself. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think he doesn't really actually, I don't know if he mentions Hegel at all in this opening chapter. No, he kind of vaguely references him, but not really. But this is a Hegelian point, right? That, that the, the, the truth of the species or the genus rather is expressed through a member of its species. As an exception. As an exception. Yeah. Yeah. He says like, if we seek the meaning of the dream in the latent content, uh, hidden by the manifest text, we're doomed to disappoint. All we find is something entirely normal, albeit usually unpleasant. Uh, the nature of which is mostly non-sexual, or definitely not unconscious. So, like, if we are obsessed with the kind of content of the dream, and then say, like, oh, this content means that, that's not really what's interesting to Zizek about the analysis of dreams. The, and the, nor, is it, nor is it the the latent dream thought either, mm-hmm. right? Like, no, it's, it's 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 how the unconscious attaches itself. I think he, he uses the word intercalate. It's between the latent content and manifest content. Uh-huh. The way that an unconscious desire articulates itself through the form of the dream. It's between yeah. a chicken and a, and a goose. It's intercalated. Inter- <laughs> 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 I think uh, you should leave that on the back seat of the car to cook. 
<laughs> okay, that's <laughs> delegating. But yeah, he he calls it the dream work. Like, why does why is it a dream at all? Right? Like, huh. right. Not necessarily what the content of it is, but why has the both the content and the the latent dream thought been manifested as a dream at all? Like, what is the point which of is, that being a dream? Right. Which is as you just said, the 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 dream, the work, the dream. What is it? The dream work. Yeah, DreamWorks. <laughs> <laughs> hey, actually, it's pretty, theme park. Great I've been name to. for a... DreamWorks <laughs> is pretty. Yeah, is a good name, man. Well, uh, again, referencing the uh, the Monsters Inc. example you had there, Michael. Yeah, Monster Right, that's it's back. Fair, but, yeah, but actually, that's like I think that like pretty solidly uh, like conforms to what we're talking about here. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Like in that understanding of the dream, like the like the, the nightmare, the, the content of the nightmare doesn't really matter, and nor it's about, would it's about the, the meaning surplus, of yeah. It's about the surplus extracted through the uh, the fact that it's a dream at all, and that dreams nightmares are more productive than yeah, or at that point like later on. Yeah, productivity of the dream that actually yeah. is a source of, of of energy. Yeah, interesting. Also, that it's. A direct commodity, yeah. In Monsters Inc. Yeah, that's yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. Um, Any other favorite childhood movies that we should talk about by way of <laughs> using up time? <laughs> uh, Jumanji, uh, uh, Hook. Uh, oh, oh hook. hook! Oh yeah, Jumanji actually was too much of a nightmare for me. I was kind of scared of that of that movie. Mm-hmm. It is scary. Yeah, but I, it, I think also in. In trying to understand Freud's uh, interpretation of dreams, um, the the role of the unconscious can be difficult to parse. Mm-hmm. Gijek's pointing out here that that there's nothing there's nothing particularly unconscious in the latent dream thought. That it's actually can be articulated in the syntax of of everyday common language, um, and and this is this is why I think Lacan says that the unconscious speaks. Like it's it's there fully in a sense on the surface, mm-hmm. um, but it's kind of uh, well, it's disavowed, I suppose. Or rather, the un like the unconscious kernel is is kind of expressed in the form of content. Yeah, the essential constitution of the dream is thus not its latent content, but the work, which confers on it the form of a dream. Herein then lies the basic misunderstanding. If we seek to if we seek the secret of the dream and the latent content hidden by the manifest text, we are doomed to disappointment. All we find is some entirely normal, albeit usually unpleasant thought, the nature of which is mostly non-sexual and definitely not unconscious. I did already say that quote, but... Okay, yeah. But it, uh, it's a good quote. That's good, too. It hits. Like, like the, the, um, the latent thought, yeah, the latent thought of the dream, uh, DJ points out that there's a kind of short circuit here between the latent thought expressed in the dream and a, a really repressed desire, a desire which is not at all associated with the latent thought, but is the kind of real repressed desire of the dream. Yeah, so he kind of sums all this up. He says, well, uh, Michael, I think you might have mentioned this, but at bottom, dreams are nothing other than the particular form of thinking made possible by the conditions of the state of sleep. It is a dream work which creates that form, and it alone is the essence of dreaming, um, the explanation of its peculiar nature. Um, yeah, so like, what's weird about a dream is that it's a dream at all, not necessarily the content of the dream. And I think that's basically what he's getting at. Yeah, and then yeah. like, but it's still a bit hard to get. Like, how is dream work, right? Uh, how is dreaming work, or like, how is it constituted? And then this is when he brings Marx uh, and his description of the commodity form. Into yeah, the, it's the the thing that makes it sort of like meaningful to associate with Marx is is in terms of a hermeneutical approach. Right, mm-hmm. like the the dream can be actually interpreted, interpreted and read as a kind a of message, of, yeah, on a yeah. level of abstraction that is that is distinct from either the idea that it's expressing some unconscious desire or that it's a dream with uh, in which certain things happen that that might that may or may not be meaningful to interpret. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, that is the method. The hermeneutical approach itself is the kind of thing that he's emphasizing here. That as well as yeah, like how how the how the content of the dream is manifested by the form itself. Yeah, 
those two, and those two things he finds he sees in Marx, like already at work in Marx. Yeah. Um, where he writes, uh, it's like the the like the meaning seemingly hidden behind the dream is actually in a sense kind of uh, put there by the interpretation of it. Like that is to say, like it's not actually behind the meaning or or under the the apparent content of the dream. The thing that makes it uh, uh, interesting to look at at all is that. Um, I get well, that. then, yeah, I mean, like, okay, then Marx op- opens Capital with uh, you know, exampling the, the the commodity and says, like, th- it seems like it's just like a thing that you trade, uh, that there's something inherent in the quality of the commodity that is equal to something else. Yeah. It's, uh, so. Let me get that. Let me get that Marx thing going. Just a sec. So just to set it up a bit, Pete. <clears throat> so it's like the difference between Zizek setting up the political economy and the libidinal economy. Ah, uh, yeah. Between Marx and Freud. Mm-hmm. So there's no secret behind, within, or beneath the form. The secret is the form itself. Yeah. So like, why have latent dream thoughts assume such a form? Why are they transposed into the form of a dream as well as why is work assumed the form of the value of a commodity and why can it affirm its uh, social character only in the commodity form? Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not really what does the dream say or what does the content say or what does the commodity form say? It's why is it expressed in this way to begin with? Yeah, so yeah, I mean, Marx, simply put, it's basically just what I said earlier. He says, the commodity is, first of all, an external object, a thing which through its qualities satisfies human needs of whatever kind. But like, that is what it appears as. But what Zizek is pointing to and what Marx explains is that it's actually far more work in a commodity rather than the content of those satisfaction of needs, right? Right. Like, whereas a dream first appears to be its content, it in fact includes all these other things around it. So like that dual uh, movement, the hermeneutical approach, as well as uh, getting rid of the fascination of the kind of like signification of dreams and, and more towards an, uh, an emphasis on the dream work. There's, it's reminiscent of two stages with Marx that Zizek is pointing to in his analysis of the secret of the commodity form. First, um, Zizek writes, we must break the appearance according to which the value of a commodity depends on pure hazard on an accidental interplay between supply and demand, for example. We must accomplish the crucial step of conceiving the hidden meaning behind the commodity form, the signification expressed by this form. We must penetrate the secret value commodity. So like the value isn't, isn't merely like it's kind of usefulness. Yeah, it's but, value. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but value, and this is also what Mark says, but like value is something other than use. It kind of exists in this kind of abstract sense. Yeah, value is abstract. Even though, you know, as as Mar- you know, many materialists, traditional Marxists would have it, value uh, is not an abstract force because it's a, it's, a, it's labor time. Yeah, yeah. But he does emphasize that you know, in in exchange value, which is another term uh, here, Zizek uh, is emphasizing that the commodity is its value can be abstracted from it in the form in the uh in the medium or mode of exchange um so that like it's not just that the commodity is represent representative of its conditions of creation in terms of the labor time represents or its use value but in the activism of its exchange uh, away from these concrete characteristics there is also abstract a, a kind of abstraction in the sense of it's being the same value as the thing for which it is exchanged. Yeah, like how is it money. possible that these two different objects, these two different things, um, can be equivalent, right? Like, what is at work there? Um, what kind of abstract force is at work there? Because one thing does not equal another in any other sense than on a, as an abstraction. Yeah. You have to you have to be able to abstract to understand those things as equating one another. And, and I think Jesus very cleverly points out how this pre, this actually presages the the mode of abstraction that the, that the natural sciences attempts uh, mm-hmm. to, to interpret, you know, like in, in various disciplines, like um, in in physics or in or in the natural sciences. The in the natural sciences, there's there's a search for the determining quantities by which nature expresses itself, irrespective of their specific qualitative iterations. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's all, this is also expressed in the commodity form where I'm quoting Zizek here. The, the commodity form is at work in money, that, that commodity which renders possible the commensurability of the value of all other commodities, notwithstanding their particular qualitative determinations. Yeah, so money is what levels these commodities amongst each other, right? Like what, what makes them be able to be equivalent to one another. Yeah, but I'm, or, or uh, in the words of Philomena Kunk, money is the best way we have for telling how much money we've got. <laughs> so what is money? Put simply, money is the best way we have of telling how much money you've got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, like, I think just, just to touch on Marx, it's like the commodity is, first of all, an object, a thing which, through its qualities, satisfies human needs of whatever kind. But I think if you, if you put the kind of psychoanalytic twist on, like, on an, on an object and a thing, mm-hmm. as, you know, in a way that he probably, you know, obviously did not mean it, but I think kind of gets you to thinking about the commodity as, well, I mean, Dijak outright says that money is a sublime object. Yeah, he does say this that. chapter, yeah. Yep. Um, um, well, he's, like, he's pointing out that, that the, the, these levels of, of abstraction of these things rely on what he, what he calls another scene. The abstraction that occurs through the frame supported by the transcendental subject. That's mm-hmm. key here. Like, the, yeah. thing that he's, the thing that he's saying, his comment on science there is that in, its, in the scientific method is the, is the disavowed role of the transcendental subject. That, that frame in which qualities and quantities can assume an abstract value and an equivalent value, uh, an equivalent interpretative uh, frame. The, um, it's, I, I'm not sure if I've ever really seen this. I'm sure there is something, <clears throat> just, just, you know, some a whole field of description on this, but value is like a Hegelian like, triad. There's, like, there's exchange and use and then value as such. Mm. Uh, only at, which is only expressed through those, those things, but is nonetheless different than them. Well, is value as such money? I'm not well, money, but not a particular type of money, right? Because, like, yeah, there's only ever like dollars or yen or euros or whatever, but like there is money as such, mm-hmm. which, is, which is only ever manifested as like a particular form of money, right? Anyway, but <clears throat> the thing that also, Zizek is doing here is, is showing that like social forms can be explained in the same terms as we understand psychical forms, right? And from what I can understand, this is, this is kind of an innovation. I, don't, I, think that, I think that there were like psychoanalytic Marxists before this, but it, I mean, I know that there were, but um, like from what I've heard Todd, for example, say that there is something novel in this application of psychoanalytic reading of uh social forms that mm-hmm. Zizek is doing yeah. here yeah well it's interesting he's also building off alfred son rethel how do you say that guy's name yeah that guy seems cool he's quoting him a lot yeah it seems like this basic point that we're that we're making here about uh the kind of structure of the commodity form being evident or suggestive of the transcendental subject is a point that Zizek is getting from this this fellow here um, and this is and this is an interesting point that like the abstraction is not occurring solely within that or the the interpretive mode or hermeneutical mode is not occurring within a subject, right? Because it can be exchanged. This is the thing that makes it essential to its functioning is that is that it is exchanged between subjects. There's an intersubjective. Yeah. Is he saying that that the abstraction that's required for the for the exchange of commodities? needs to be also the explanation for us as subjects because in order to think like thinking is a kind of form of exchange and like subjectivity yeah. itself is a form of exchange and that what yeah. we are uh as subjects is something that is is like something that is constituted by something outside of us yeah it's also it's also form of exchange right? yeah yeah like yeah. you can read the exchange here as as the universal medium through which particulars are are expressed yeah, uh, I mean, the, and, and like, if you think about it, like an object, like is not inherently a commodity, right? Like it's a, it's commodity in so far as it's able to be exchanged. I, I, it's like identity as a commodity exists beyond the specifics of, of the form itself, as you're saying with Freud. Right. And, and so too with this kind of like, you know, Zizek is also setting up here a like 
a way of interpreting reality itself, I think, too. Or like a comment yeah. on, so, on social reality itself. Because like, yes, reality in a sense is determined by our by our own particular experience of it, the, the welter of our impressions, of our, of our sensory impressions, for instance. This is not what he says, but I think you can say this. But like, he makes an interesting point here that if we focus too closely on the kind of like, on the kind of abstractions of reality, we, we miss that, that the abstractions themselves have a, have a kind of reality where we act as if mm-hmm. the abstraction is in, is in itself a real thing. So like yeah. money's an example of this, but like, it, like we don't get closer to reality by, by saying, Oh, all of these things are just made up, which is mm-hmm. kind of like, that in a, that I think is the folly of a lot of like um, social construction theories, and also just like of the of the kind of typical like, uh, well, the non money isn't real example of this too. Like, and also people saying like, oh, money isn't real. Like, so then it's like, well, its effects are quite real. So yeah, so that's like, a version of like, describing it as reality. Exactly. Yeah, like, and that's why Zizek gets into like the materiality of belief. Exactly. Well, yeah, just to just to just to reframe that point you made is like there is a reality of an illusion and this is kind of like his first description of ideology in the book mm-hmm. but like an illusion that functions socially but like kind of depends on people not being particularly aware of it and uh but is nonetheless real and like even if you are aware of it like in the dream aware of the manifest content that doesn't particularly uh like uh, gain it, it does not allow access necessarily in itself to understanding like the, the form itself. And mm-hmm. I think that this is where a lot of people go wrong. Like, I was just trying to say like, a, like a person who, who has, who has become convinced that they can see through the layers of false reality the everyday. I mean, you could say conspiracy theorists, but I think this extends to just the, how a lot of people relate to reality. Mm-hmm. They say, you know, they say like, Oh, don't you realize that none of this is real. This is just a fiction. Mm-hmm. I think for one thing that leads to psychosis, but that's beside the point. But like, you know, Zizek says here that if we come to know too much to pierce the true functioning of social reality, this, this, would, this reality would dissolve itself. That is like, it's not like, yes, reality is a fiction. And that's what Lacan says. But that doesn't make it not real or not effective. And it doesn't make it, it, does, it doesn't mean that it doesn't act uh, actually, it's th- that it's not actually existing. So, which is to say, the abstraction is also real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? But like, what? And then he, he describes like what is real in the abstraction. Well, this is where we reach the the dimension of the symptom, as Jesus says. Right. Well, I sorry just to just to land that point about abstraction and money, etc. Like, like what? Like, say you have tarnished money ripped money it's still worth just as much as a perfectly like new version of itself therefore like it's money like the money is something other than the physical form in which you're holding in that uh there's a kind of like okay this is actually pretty cool what he says he says this immaterial corporality the body within the body gives us a precise definition of the sublime object this is actually good because it does it for it does it for us uh, and is in the sense that the psychoanalytic notion of money as a prephallic anal object is acceptable, provided that we do not forget how this postulated existence of the sublime body depends on the symbolic order. The indestructible body within the body, exempted from the effects of wear and tear, is always sustained by the guarantee of some symbolic authority. So, like, mm-hmm. yeah, money is money is guaranteed by something external, the symbolic order. Right. Just as Hence yeah. the insignia on a coin. Mm-hmm. The guarantor of its worth, yeah, and hence the like. He also draws a, a comparison here between like between that and like and, and a king. Like a king, yes, is someone who thinks he's a king, but is also someone who's treated like a king. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then and then it makes he makes the move into what you were saying about the symptom, right? Mm-hmm. Well, symbolic order is also cover, like a continuation of what we were saying in terms of like you as a subject exist within the symbolic order, right? Like yeah, you don't yeah. exist like kind of separately and cohesively beyond it, but only well, it's like it. if you had your, like if you had your own kind of money, mm-hmm. no one would recognize it as money. So, yeah. So it wouldn't be money. 
when I was a kid uh, at a novelty store, I bought uh, what looked like initially to be like fake American money, which I thought was fun and a real laugh. Um, and then when I when I brought it home, I was shocked and and disturbed to find that there were penises all over it. <laughs> <laughs> it was like really traumatic. Uh, event at the time i was like really upset that there were penises all over it so instead of a pre it was uh it was a pre it was uh, actually a post phallic uh, object not a pre phallic <laughs> one <laughs> <laughs> okay so i think also the, the there's a point here to be made um vis-a-vis like s- social existence of the, the social reality of symbols or uh is that like they don't particularly rely on on subjects or individuals being knowing that they're abstractions they they, they act anyway and that is mm-hmm. that's what you calls ideology so like spinning off of that the non-knowledge on the part of the subject um this is the dimension of the symptom because one of its possible definitions Zizek says would be a formation whose very consistency implies a certain non-knowledge on the part of the subject. Subject can enjoy his symptom only insofar as it's... Fuck, I forgot. I didn't post the rest of that quote. <laughs> I got to Wait. <laughs> Another one as well. <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me step in here for a second. Uh, the subject can enjoy his symptom only insofar as its logic escapes him. The measure of the success of the, its interpretation is precisely its dissolution. I'm not sure he would still agree with that last statement there say it it again repeat he says um the subject can enjoy his symptom only so far as its logic escapes him which is what you were saying and then the measure of the success of its interpretation the symptoms interpretation is precisely its dissolution is there really a dissolution exactly of the symptom like ultimately no i think it would be preserved somehow I mean, I think it's like we were saying with like the death drive, for instance. There's not like an end to the death drive. No, because that dissolution bit I was thinking about before, but I couldn't finish the thought when I was reading it. But it it made it made sense to me when I was reading. I'm just trying to think it through. Like it's it almost seems like he's saying there that you you can come to the end of like traversing the fantasy would be like kind of reaching the end of this of the treatment and being kind of like like without symptoms. I thought it had more to do with how abstraction itself is unconscious. Like it's the transcendental framework. Oh, that's the, that's a general point he's making beforehand. Green. Mm. It's a bit beside the point, but yeah, I was, a, I, I read that last bit and I was like, that seems like something he wouldn't necessarily write now. The measure of the success of its interpretation is precisely its dissolution. I know our good friend Rex Butler does a, a comparison essay with sublime object and parallax view on Zizek's changing position. Interesting. What do you remember what he says? I know I just downloaded it for this episode. So I everyone, it. everyone, Michael will, will get back to us on, on what he's downloaded. <laughs> yeah. Very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's the, right now, right now the, your computer is, is uh, learning it for you. It's like, Thank it exists. You. It's a part, it's an external, it's enjoying the, uh, the text for you. Okay, but then he says that the that the symptom sort of uh, paves the way for finding the the crack in the in the totality of the system. Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. So so he, then he yeah he says like okay, what then is the Marxian symptom? Like if Marx invented the symptom, what is it? Um, and it's the way in which just you like you were saying the kind of like asymmetry and imbalance of the system like undermines its universal sense of itself so like the example he gives is, is freedom so like yeah, yeah. in the kind of what marx describes as as bourgeois freedom for instance the freedom to buy the kind of individual rights um is under, yeah is undermined and relies on just like you're just like you said one's freedom quote unquote to sell their labor in that they're free to enslave themselves to capital and this for Marx shows the limits of bourgeois freedom in that it shows the unfreedom of that type of freedom. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And freedom and is the exception. That. Sorry, Pego. Oh, I was just going to, uh, there is the kind of universal notion of freedom, but 
it's only that relies on the kind of implicit unfreedom of the system. Yeah. Yeah. So it's sustained by that exception. Mm-hmm. Right. So like the idea is that in Marx's inventing of the symptom, according to Lacan, it's the it's the idea that he's highlighted a particular species of the genus of freedom. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you're free to sell your labor, but of course, therein lies the rub. Yeah, Zizek says by by selling his labor freely, the worker loses his freedom. The real content of this free act of sale is the worker's enslavement to capital. Yeah, that sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Can't can't confirm it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, murder is a crime unless it's in self-defense, etc. All systems have this point of exception. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Like, yeah, and Dijek also goes on to say that the, the emergence of this new commodity of, of, of labor as a commodity is the internal negation of the universal principle of equivalent exchange of commodities. In other words, it brings about a symptom. It instantiates I'm, a kind of negativity into, that, into the terrain of, of supposed uh, bourgeois universality of, yeah. the, of the individual. Uh, I'm, I'm straight until I have a really gay dream. <laughs> or it's like uh, i'm a chicken unless until i have an egg dream you know (laughs) but so yeah the idea is that like marx detects a contradictory element right that undermines this 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 form um and so the ideological critique that's accomplished is like that that's the symptom grounds and ungrounds the subject, right? Exactly. So it's not just that that the relations between men are replaced by relations between things, which is to say that that men or workers become things. There's there's a further element here that that relation introduces a uh, different element into the into the mix, where it it appears as an immediate property of the of the relation, um, but the property itself belongs to a kind of outside of that relation. It implies, for instance, it, it says something about the universal form of freedom and not just the, the material form of freedom between subjects. Wait, the... Like, that, that workers are in their apparent freedom of their ability to sell their labor and, mm-hmm. and, and even to be uh, uh, in, in their abstraction um, the same as other workers. This because is- because of wage, like yeah, wage labor. Yeah. Exactly. This also, like you know, as, as Marx says, this is also a form of unfreedom. But it also introduces into the the category, the form of freedom itself. It's on the breakdown of, of freedom, mm-hmm. um, as well that, as like that's the stage for for a totally for a total reformulation of the notion of freedom. Let's say in the Marxist sense, where where people uh, in the people, utopian sense. Perhaps. Oh, in the utopian sense, there's that, but also I think yeah. in the in the Marxist sense of like acknowledging that that terrain of unfreedom as the the terrain to be to be kind of like emphasized and work and and worked through and like you stake your claim to the common unfreedom of workers like you in the name of establishing a different, more universal form of freedom. Mm-hmm. And maybe just what we were saying earlier with like the the kind of interpretive interpreting symptoms leads to its dissolution there isn't like it's not it's not that this understanding of this process leads to freedom for in the marxian sense nor and and this is Zizek's kind of problem with marx and his utopianism is that there's not going to be an end to like the contradictions of of being alive right like they exist in different forms under a different economic system um but yeah, also what he's pointing to, like, and what you suggested in terms of like where the through wages and through labor, the worker in se- like becomes a commodity, right? Labor becomes a commodity, but there's also surplus value. And I think he's also going to make the link, Dijak, between surplus value and surplus enjoyment in this book, right. I think. Yeah, he does. Yep. Yeah. So like, yeah, there is through the symptoms, there is a kind of level of, there's an add-on. There's like uh something that develops to the, the kind of normal process of the system of be it uh uh psychically or economically that produces a kind of surplus that 
is something other than merely like kind of the smooth functioning of the system. Yeah, and it also it also produces a subjectivity that that can become hystericized. So like, why why is this freedom not freedom? Like, what? How am I as a worker who's who's allegedly free in my in my ability to to sell my sell my labor for for an apparently fair exchange? Zizek says here, instead of appearing at all events as their own mutual relations, the social relations between individuals are just are disguised under the shape of social relations between things. Here we have a precise definition of the hysterical symptom of the hysteria of conversion proper to capitalism. That like the the subject of this social arrangement, I think through the through the logic of the of the social arrangement can be sort of shat out the other end and made the the contradiction to the to the uh, notion of the social arrangement. Mm-hmm. Well yeah the proletariat is the Right, the sim- could we say it's the symptom of the capitalist system? Yeah, and it, yeah, but it, but it also is the the point at which the subjectivity can, or the the point at which the system can be hystericized. Why is the proletariat, in a sense, kind of doomed here to only serve the capitalist class? Like the proletariat becoming the grave diggers of capitalism. It's like it, the proletariat doesn't exist before capitalism exists. Mm-hmm. Proletariat exists as a result of the capitalist dynamics but then but then also functions as as the contradiction to it yeah but so so like that link between symptoms and commodities so it's it's in the interpretation of a symptom in psychoanalysis or the interpretation of a commodity in marx that you can only enjoy a symptom or enjoy a commodity through the interpretation of a symptom or a commodity you lose your enjoyment so say, for example, in, in a commodity with, say, an iPhone or whatever, if you're wholly conscious of everything that's involved in its production, your enjoyment is removed, mm-hmm. dissolved. Though often, like, that awareness stands in for doing anything about the, the, right. that uh, functioning as itself, right? Like it's, so it's, that produces it's enough cynicism, to know, right? Yeah, it's enough to know, like, oh, yes, people at the Apple company are throwing themselves off a roof but that knowledge is taken kind of just like it's as itself some sort of political standpoint or whatever absolutely yeah so that's when you get back into materiality of belief so it doesn't matter whether you are consciously involved in that process or not it's your act it's your actions that belie your unconscious belief and that's when we get back to this idea of like this hermeneutic or interpretive model it reveals this unconscious relationship. That's what this abstraction stuff's all about. Mm-hmm. And, and and then just just to focus on the abstraction notion again, like Gija calls it a uh, scandal, right? That yeah. mm. and a kind of threat to the threats of philosophy that something like knowledge of this kind of thing, something like knowledge, an awareness of abstraction, is only a result of exchange or not only is primarily or at least initially the result of exchange something that exists beyond the interpretive the the act of interpretation so like like the threat i guess being he only really implies it but i guess the threat to philosophy then as an attempt to i don't know understand the world in some basic sense uh itself is a kind of manifestation of a process of exchange beyond itself is that what he was saying? That sounds interesting. I'm not quite sure what you mean, but I, I just think I, I thought, haven't. I thought it was yet. that it dissolves philosophy itself. In so what it, sense? So like, well, it is actually. <laughs> no, no, no. That's what that's what Hegel is doing, right? Like Hegel's Hegel's style of philosophy is not just about expounding certain principles. It's about showing how the subject, in a sense, kind of exists already philosophically. Um, already phenomenologically in, in Hegel's sense, uh, despite whatever content fills that that, sub- that subjective mode of understanding. See what I mean? Yeah. And the idea would be that like the subject relies on its symptoms to constitute its identity. You you remove the symptom, you remove the subject. Right. Yeah. And I think this goes back to what why Zizek thinks that psychoanalysis needs to be kind of added to philosophy, at least at this point. Because it helps explain that something like knowledge, the knowledge of philosophy is also reliant on 
this kind of network of unconscious and it's not on the level of awareness that a lot of the kind of truths of the world function. Yeah. So it's like a lot of people, you know, like, sorry, one of the conventional ways of understanding uh, our, our social uh, situation, sorry, our, uh, one, of the way, one of the ways of, of understanding our, our social dynamics, our social reality in whatever form, like let's say either in, in, in history or in like uh, in, in sort of a political framing, like, uh, you know, MSNBC style political framing of a, of, a, of a specific moment might be able to interpret it based on the express content of whatever, of whatever is under discussion. Um, but, but misses the, is the, this extra third layer, uh, which is to say that it's not, it's not merely what does the content say, it, it's latent thought, but why is it expressed in this way to begin with? Mm-hmm. Well put. In terms of the interpretive mode Zizek is trying to sort of get to here, um, he's saying that this kind of like emphasis on the, what he's calling the third layer, uh, you could say the third pill even, um, quoting here, offers us a kind of matrix enabling, sorry, offers a kind of matrix enabling us to generate all other forms of fetishistic inversion. It is as if the dialectics of the commodity form presents us with a pure, still, so to speak, version of a mechanism offering us a key to the theoretical understanding of phenomena, which at first sight have nothing whatsoever to do with the field of political economy. And from the Marxists, like once you, once you think that it doesn't have, like once you discuss this, this understanding of the symptom, it also initially doesn't appear to have anything to do with the unconscious. Right. But he's like saying that, that it, it kind of reformulates the field. Yeah. Like that. And, and in terms of the dream, it's like, it's not just a discussion of the of the of the of the of the uh, manifest content or the latent thought, right? Mm-hmm. That third that third layer that third that third pill is like the thing that well, it's a well, it's the, I think it's really just like the terrain of theory, right? Yeah, there's no there's no neutral field upon which to just like discuss these phenomena, right? Like because the very discussion itself is already a particular framing of it. Exactly. So like, that's your next point about science too. It's like, yeah. it's not just a neutral explanation of the, of the natural world. It, it relies for one thing on the category of the subject interpreting it. Mm-hmm. And I guess what the point of him emphasizing this is to, is to point to the uh, notion that in, in an attempt to understand those things, an understanding of how the subject and the contents of the study are always kind of like they're always they it's always in, it's always informed by things like um things like uh this the the well things like the symptoms like mm-hmm. yeah by the by yeah something external that is not apparent and yet is is active in that we assume it's kind of inherent reality yeah like like we we tend to have this this idea that that we are discrete individual subjects who have our own perception of the world unmediated by uh social conditions or or symbolic uh a a certain symbolic field but that that's you know that's obviously ridiculous um and yeah that's like what what jizek is doing here and you know it's like he's he's pointing out the the interpretive mode of freud and of marx are are very similar one thing Mm -hmm. and also like uh don't rely on on uh on a simple interpretation of of things and ideas that there's like there's another category here where the a formal category that that is through those modes of thought is a, a, there's the attempt to access that formal that formal mode of thinking the abstract mm-hmm. mode of thinking and the innovation it's like a, the, that they provide is like it allows you to understand those other things by way of understanding um, like Freud also said, you know, likened his 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 body of thought to the to Copernicus, the Copernican Revolution, right? And what does something like a Copernican Copernican Revolution do? Is it reformulates a given set of conditions in a completely different mode of interpretation? Right, and that's so that's why Zizek can piggyback on Lacan saying that it's the transition from feudalism to capitalism mm-hmm. that allows for both. It basically allows for Marx to say that the world isn't that I that ideas aren't just created by the mind, 
they're also created by the hands. Ah, that there's a materiality. Good, good point. Yeah. Really nice. And that, and that, and then again, that materiality isn't mere material. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's both are both are kind of inverted. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, I think that's it, folks. Any any final <laughs> remarks? Uh, I heard a bird imitating a car alarm the other day. It was pretty cool. Oh wow! Had a guy. It was like wee 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 wee. It's a starling. <laughs> Starlings are 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 uh, imitators. Uh, Jizuk and so on. Um, thanks for listening. Um, We're supposed to be talking to Agon Hamza soon. We'll see if that ever materializes. Um, until then, uh, be well. See you later. Bye. Oh, oh, oh by the way, uh, uh, um, the Jizuk and so on podcast stands united with the people of Ukraine. <laughs> in case you were wondering. Yeah. <laughs> everyone has to assure everyone else that, that that they're not on Russia's side. It's like mm-hmm. no one cares, man. For one thing, it's like uh, what what you personally believe isn't isn't really the point of this whole of this moment. <laughs> I find it very funny how people like in Halifax have like Ukrainian flags hanging like on their houses. It's like not true. Like who are you convincing here, right? Like what does this what does this mean? Like that you need to represent this to the people who uniformly as they walk by Thank you.